Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Well, here's something special I promised you all a while back. In our final bonus episode, before the eighth season of Family Secrets launches in just a few weeks, the tables are turned, and today, I'm the guest. The wonderful Kimmy Culp, writer, motivational speaker, former Oprah producer, and host of the podcast All the Wiser, is sitting in my seat today and asking all the questions about my family secrets. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Hello, Danny. Welcome to Family Secrets. <laughs> Hi, Kimmy. It's nice to be on Family Secrets. Yes, yes. Familiar territory for you. My intention for this conversation is really for this beautiful community you have built, your listening audience, to know you a little deeper and, yeah, hopefully find some pieces of themselves in stories that perhaps they'll hear for the first time. And the origin story of Family Secrets in this podcast was you as a secret. And I know so many of your listeners are familiar, but for anyone who's listening, and does not know that story of the life-changing secret that you learned in 2016. Can you briefly share? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2016, my husband, Michael, uh, was sending away for a DNA test, a home DNA test. And he asked me if I wanted to do it too. And I just, on a whim, said, sure. It wasn't out of any real profound curiosity or you know, I, I could easily have said no because I thought I knew everything that there was to know about my family and its ancestry and my origins, my ancestors. But I went ahead and did it. And when the results came back, I actually didn't even remember that I had done it. That's how insignificant it was to me. The results revealed to me that my dad hadn't been my biological father, the dad who raised me. And 
I learned a lot. I uncovered a, a great deal about secrets that my parents kept all their lives that I feel certain they intended to take to the grave with them, which they did. After a lifetime of writing about secrets, of writing novels and memoirs about secrets, and always also feeling like something didn't totally add up, just something I felt slightly adjacent to myself somehow, it all suddenly became clear. And you described, you know, growing up having this really easy love for your father and just this deep adoration, whereas your mother was more distant. At times, it was much more contentious. And you had even pondered that question, you know, is she my mom? Does she feel like my mom? I'm curious, sort of, you know, you've described a sense of loneliness as a kid, wandering around the neighborhood, peering in windows, looking at families, large families with siblings. And so I know you were an only child, and I'm curious about Danny and the outer world versus your inner world and what that was like during that time. So Danny in the outer world apparently looked like she belonged. People who I've encountered over the years who knew me when I was a kid are really shocked to learn how out of step I felt and, you know, that I didn't feel that I belonged. Um, you know, people I went to middle school with, people I went to high school with, all really profess shock about that because I guess I had a kind of contained nature and I sort of looked the part, but I felt really like a creature visiting from outer space a lot of the time. I didn't feel like people really knew me or that I really knew myself in many ways. And the environment of my home was so awkward and uncomfortable. One of the things I've really learned on, you know, hosting this podcast is that what we experience as children, whatever the environment is of our home, um, we just think that that's the way it is and that's normal and maybe that's the way everybody lives. At a certain point when I was probably in high school, I started realizing that that wasn't the case and that the atmosphere in our home was markedly different from, you know, my friends whose homes I would visit. It felt to me, and I think this has to do with my own extreme sensitivity, you know, just to behavior and tone and actions of others. It felt to me like it was a tinderbox. It felt like it was always ready to just sort of explode. My parents were miserable with each other, and there was something in the way that each of them was with me, very different in the way that they treated me, but there was something that just didn't feel easy or comfortable. You know, as we have this conversation, I've thought a lot about how your present work, this podcast included, is deeply informed by your past. I think all of our work is. But I also, from hearing you and, and how you talk about your son, Jacob, and your husband, Michael, the deep love and connection that I hear in the family you've created. You know, I think so often in generational stories, we either 
repeat or, for lack of a better language, we, we write the wrong and create something very different. And it appears to me that, that you very much created that. It certainly feels to me like the greatest achievement of my life um, that I didn't repeat and that I did create something different. And I, I do think that probably from the time that I was a teenager, I was forming myself in counter-identification to my mom. I understood that she was somebody who very often put people off, chronically felt misunderstood, was very angry a lot of the time. Um, this kind of just simmering, low-level, ready-to-be-dissed at the slightest notice. You know, the world had something against her in her mind. And she sort of built the life that she saw, in a way. Like, she felt that way about the world, and so the world reflected that back at her. And, you know, I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. I have a lot more understanding of her now than I, than I did when I was younger. But as a mother, she wanted me to be a certain way. And if I didn't conform to the way that she wanted me to be, which was essentially a reflection of her, then there was trouble if I couldn't do that. And I'm sure, if, and then for you, a sense of not enough. I'm not enough for her. Right. And something that's occurred to me recently, I've been thinking a lot about my father. The anniversary of his death was just last week and always a time where he's very much on my mind. And because of his religiosity, I mean, it was really the defining characteristic of my father was that he was an Orthodox Jew. It's how he would have defined himself, I think, before any other way of defining himself. It was the landscape that he was brought up in. And, you know, there were generations preceding him, you know, where that was the way they lived. And in order to please my father, I think my father would have loved me no matter what, because he knew how to love, which was something that I think saved me in a lot of ways. But in terms of his approval, I had a really hard time being a good little Orthodox Jewish girl. If you had asked me, I think even when I was like a child, whether I thought that I would grow up and marry an Orthodox man and, you know, have a whole bunch of Orthodox children and, and live that life, I think I would have known from a very early age that that wasn't going to be my path. And that was really problematic between my father and me because that was the most important thing to him. So in a way, I was sort of squeezed between both of my parents and failing them each with my mother because I was unable to be her perfect mirror and with my father because I just wasn't that Orthodox Jewish girl. That makes so much sense to me. And yeah, this idea of just the radical acceptance for you exactly as who you are and, and who you came into this world. So you mentioned being the anniversary of your father's death. And, you know, as I research and as I told you, it's been such a joy and privilege to learn about you through your work. I see these sort of tentpole moments in your life, and some of them are of deep suffering and trauma, and certainly the loss of your father. Your parents were in a car crash that killed your dad and your mom survived. So for what you're comfortable sharing, what do you remember about that period, about about that day and sort of how it shaped you? 
That day I've described in, in my writing as the moment that divided my life into before and after. And when I wrote those words, I was probably in my 30s and I was writing about my 20s. I was writing about, you know, February 1986. And I was young enough to not understand that lives contain more than one of these before and after moments if we live long enough. But for me, that was the first and, and a, a huge one. I just want to preface what I'm about to say with, I've been very aware lately that I recently had a big birthday and I, I turned 60, which is still a complete shock to me. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a big milestone birthday. And I entered the decade that my, my father died in. He was 64 years old when he died. And my mother was 62 when she was widowed. And my son is 23, which is the age I was when all of this happened. And I suddenly realized all of that recently that... Wow. Yeah. Sort of all the ages and the pieces. and yeah. Exactly. Like the perfect storm of that. And um, on Family Secrets, it comes up often the whole idea of anniversaries and the anniversary of a loss or the anniversary of a shock. And, you know, it's, it's easy, I think, to dismiss what that is, but the body remembers always. You know, so I might not remember on February 23rd um, of any given year that it's February 23rd, but my body remembers. I mean, I'll, I'll be out of sorts all day, and then suddenly I'll realize what the date is and understand, you know, or I'll, I'll remember what the weather was like on that particular February day. So the main thing about that day and that time is that I was such a mess in my life. And also looking at my 23-year-old son now and seeing that he is not a mess, you know, that he knows he knows who he is and he has courage of his own convictions and he's his own person. I wasn't that yet. I was really kind of unformed. You know, when I started teaching university, when I was around 29 or 30 years old, I remember looking around the workshop table. I was teaching at Columbia University and I looked around the table at these young women, these young Barnard and Columbia women, and I could identify, it was like this little game I played in my head, you know, the ones who never would have let themselves get into so much trouble uh, or never would have sort of like followed the path that I followed and then the ones who would. I could yeah. feel and see and pick them out, you know, and tried to mentor the ones I thought I could help. But I had dropped out of college. I was modeling and acting and doing TV commercials, or at least that's what I told myself I was doing. I, I did that for a while, but I was terrible at it. If I was going to cast you for anything in, in life, knowing your deep soul and versus <laughs> <laughs> commercials, I love that. Commercials, like, you know, for Coca-Cola, yeah. you know, for York, yeah. York peppermint patties, I actually had to like jump up and down on the beach and say, California loved New York with more chocolate. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was terrible and uncomfortable in my own skin and awkward, but because Again, going back to sort of mirroring my mother, a big part of the fuss that was made over me when I was growing up was the way that I looked and that I was a pretty yeah. pretty little girl and I was a pretty teenager. And I kind of just went with that. I thought, well, I guess that's what I have to offer. 
I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anybody because I'm not. Like, I had a lot of longing for other things, but I didn't know. Well, maybe that's the disconnect I just felt because I know you write for your brilliant mind. And so much of that work is on the physical appearance, especially when you're young and youthful. And yeah, that's so interesting. You know, this expectation that you were beautiful and that people identified you with that and that perhaps there was some unconscious expectation around that to do something with that physical beauty. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was complicated by the fact that that focus on my looks had a lot to do with my not looking Jewish, quote unquote. You know, that, that's yeah. what, what people were constantly, constantly saying. And so really what they were saying was that I didn't look like who I thought I was. Um, or like my my physical appearance was some sort of crazy, weird gift, like some sort of nutty fluke that I looked the way that I looked and I didn't look like my family. And instead I was, you know, very fair and had blue eyes and features that just didn't look like, you know, anybody that I was surrounded by. So I think somewhere within that, there was this hard kernel of confusion. You've described this inner knowing, which I think when I hear you talk about it, it feels so relevant and real to me as I look back on my life. And, you know, part of it, as you share, is with your physical appearance, almost this whisper of your heart, right? Something's off. Mm -hmm. And that subconscious knowing, and you've described with the discovery that your father was not your biological father, that it was almost as if the puzzle piece, it all came into focus, all that little subconscious, the whisper of the heart and the mind. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm deeply curious about that and, and what your heart was saying to your mind. I think that that's, that's where that disconnect that didn't enable me to really come to know myself when I was younger, I think that that's where it resided because there was this feeling that I didn't belong and I didn't know why in the world would I feel that way? Why would I feel that way? I mean, I was the ultimate insider in, ter in terms of, you know, the Jewish world. My, my, my family had a lot of prestige in that world. My ancestors on my dad's side were just storied, legendary people, why in the world would I feel like I didn't belong? Why would I go to a wedding or a bar mitzvah in my family and feel that I did not belong? Why were people constantly commenting in some sort of what was meant to be flattering way about my not looking Jewish, my not looking like where I come from? I mean, underneath that, I must have been hearing, you're not one of us. What would happen is I would double down. Anytime somebody would say something like that to me, I would nicely bite back and I would say, oh yeah, no, raised Orthodox, you know, went to a yeshiva, a Jewish day school, you know, kept a kosher home, never tasted bacon until I was a senior in high school, had two sinks and two dishwashers. I mean, really seriously kosher home, fluent in Hebrew. I would say all these things, like list them like a litany, which was my way of saying, stop it, you know, stop it, stop saying that. And and after my discovery about my dad, a couple years later, I was at a dinner, a big awards dinner that was honoring a friend of mine, and it was in the Jewish world. It was like sponsored by one of the Jewish newspapers. And I was there to, you know, congratulate and cheer on my friend 
My husband and I got there. It was a you know fancy cocktail party attire, and it was in one of those old New York City hotels that has kind of cloudy glass behind the bar and like sort of mottled glass mirror. Yeah. And I went over to the bar to get a drink, and I caught a glimpse of myself, you know, unexpectedly. And I was wearing a little black dress and I had long blonde hair, and I looked the way I looked, and all of a sudden I thought, oh. <laughs> That this is what they were seeing. I mean, in in this room, everyone would assume that I'm the wife of a Jewish man who's here, or like they would have a story. It was plain as day, but I didn't see it, couldn't see it. It was too dangerous to see it. We believe what our parents tell us. We believe the stories that were told about ourselves from the time that we're tiny. Uh, and those become our identities, and that was my identity. You know, when when Inheritance came out, you know, which is the books that I wrote about this discovery and the secret, one of the first comments I saw was on my Facebook page, and it was from the wife of my seventh-grade English teacher, who I was friends with them. They were like one of those young, cool, young English teacher couples in high school. And I was always looking for my mentors. I was always looking for like somebody to take me in like a stray dog and just, you know, make me part of their family. And this couple, uh, Peter and, and Nancy Cowan, they were like that for me. And Nancy wrote on my Facebook page, hashtag always wondered, yeah. you know, only child, older parents, physically so different from what I was supposed to look like and what my ethnicity was supposed to be. So hashtag always wondered. So there was a part of me that was working overtime always to try to, to figure, belong. to belong. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a kind of profound anxiety that I couldn't recognize or label. I mean, I was well into my 20s before I even could define the word anxiety, but it ruled me. And it shaped that feeling of not belonging, not fitting in, not adding up being other, when that's the case and we can't supply a reason for it, then we turn it against ourselves. And that was the story of, you know, I would call those sort of almost lost decades of my life. I mean, from the time that I was a child through my adolescence and into my early 20s and culminated with a thunderclap and ended, for all intents and purposes, when my parents were in their car crash, and my dad died. And it, it was a shock to my system that actually rebooted my system, you know, sort of reshaped my system, and was the very, very beginning of my figuring out who I had always been but had never allowed myself to be. Well, yeah, and I the deep wounds and the reconciliation of, of your identity, of belonging— with the discovery that your father was not your biological father, it it makes so so much sense how much when you contextualize it with the decades before and the knowing, it just really to me just almost highlights how powerful and layered the wave of emotions must have been with the discovery. And, you know, there's something that in the wake of that discovery about your family and your identity, you talk about 
you had a flight the next day, that you're on the plane and you're sort of looking around and people are eating pretzels and peanuts and going about their business. And in your body, you are in crisis, almost looking around as how is this, how is everyone just going about their business? I had lunch with my mother-in-law days after her husband died. And I remember her having that experience. She turned to me and she said, it's just so bizarre. You know, people were going about having, and meanwhile, she is sitting there, experienced this wave of disbelief and grief and heartbreak that is unbearable and the world is just moving by. So that scene was really powerful for me. But what you spoke to, which I think is really important to this community, is that your specific discovery about your father was unrelatable and unrecognizable to people, whereas the death of your father, the the car crash, some of these other moments you've had in life when Jacob was sick are immediately there's a sense of empathy and understanding. But this certain piece, discovery that was heartbreaking to you was harder for people to to grasp, to empathize with, to identify or understand. And, you know, for a podcast that is about secrets of all shapes and forms and, you know, the nuance of what a secret can be, I just thought it would be great to hear what was helpful and what was not. So as as we move through the world and people share their secrets, we can show up better for them. I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much I've learned along the way in this regard. And that feeling of, you know, how can you be eating your peanuts and watching the in-flight movie? I The thought that went through my mind is that is the experience of grief, of immediate grief is, you know, how can the world still be turning? And there are so many ways in which I think we as human beings, we want to make it better for someone who's going through something um, and if it makes us uncomfortable, we tend to fall prey to platitudes. I mean, we do that even with things that are relatable, like grief, like the loss of somebody, like, you know, death. We'll, you know, say things like, you know, she's in a better place. Or we tend to often say something that's easy, that doesn't cost us very much, just to actually deal with our own discomfort that somebody else is suffering. And, you know, one of the things that happened with my discovery, and I thought about it even really early on, too, because I knew that I was going to write about it. I was aware that it was not instantly relatable, as you say, to feel sympathy or compassion for somebody who's lost someone very close to them is not a stretch. But this felt, and I realized very quickly, because I started almost immediately, I sprang into action, which is it tends to be my way when something's really hard is I, I kind of go into fix-it mode or research mode or what can I do. And in that case, as we were moving through airports and because of where we live, we had to make connecting flights. So, you know, there were, there were planes, there were airports, there were terminals, there was Starbucks, there was, you know, there were hours to sort of observe people and also to talk to people. And I remember calling one of my aunts, my mother's older brother's wife. And I was calling them because I was trying to figure out whether anybody had ever known anything. You know, had my parents told anyone? How big a secret was this? Was this a secret that everybody was keeping and I was the only person who didn't know? Or 
did everybody not know? And did they not have that, you know, hashtag always wondered experience? And on the phone, this happened as well with my mother's best friend who I called, said, you know, well, you know, whatever happened, Danny, your father's still your father. And that was profoundly not helpful. I ultimately, over the course of years, and a tremendous amount of thought and work and questioning and living with it and metabolizing and processing, absolutely feel that my father is still my father. But on the day, you know, within 24 hours of discovering that in fact he was not, (laughs) in point of fact, there was somebody else out there in the world who was my biological father that was a total stranger to me, and I had no idea that that had been the case until that day. That's not a helpful thing to hear. It made me enraged. I felt just absolute rage at the, don't try to fix this for me right now. I'm trying to understand everything that I can possibly come to understand. Well, what you say, which is so powerful, is this idea that we're sure about the past, or at least reasonably sure, and uncertain about the future, and that when your past became completely uncertain, how disabling and wobbly that that nothingness almost on both sides, and again, the reckoning and the knowing that inner whisper becoming real and proof, then you're absolutely right. It's, it's people's own discomfort with pain and suffering that we so often can't just sit with someone in it. But the idea of acceptance, you know, I see how hard this is. This is painful versus, oh, you're still, you know, you're still part of the family or everything worked out fine. Right. (laughs) Dismissive of, of that extraordinary grief and confusion and uncertainty and trauma that you were experiencing. It's, it's minimizing something that was really significant. Yeah, I learned so much about human nature through that experience and then through the writing of Inheritance and then the publishing of Inheritance, which meant that I was having many, many conversations with people and, you know, and and everybody had different opinions. And the world really divided between people, fortunately most people, who sat back and thought, huh, what would that be like? Let me see if I can imagine what it would be like to wake up one day and discover that everything that I had believed, my entire history, my memories, all need to be reordered now. And there's no one to ask about it. There's no one, my parents were both gone. There was no one to sit down and say, what happened? And why didn't you tell me? And how did you feel about it? And did it matter to you? And was this always hard? Or did you forget it had ever happened just, you know, to have that conversation. I think that in writing Inheritance, which was the hardest book that I've ever written, I had to stay conscious as a writer about the universality. I had to constantly ask myself the question, what is universal about my experience? How can I invite the reader into my experience in a way that the reader's going to understand? And As a writer and as somebody who had written a whole bunch of books prior, I was able to really focus on doing that as a writer. How painful was was the dismissal when it was dismissed? Oh, it still happens. People will say something like, 
you know, what's the big deal? Or, you know, they'll somehow turn the volume up on the privilege argument, um, which is like, look at everything that you have. You know, you got great genes, you know, you're so fortunate. Aren't you glad you're here? That sort of thing. I, what I experience that as is very wounding because what it boils down to is not being seen, not being seen, not being understood. You know, I always begin my Family Secrets episodes with asking my guests to tell me about the landscape of their childhood. That was the landscape of my childhood. My hair could have been on fire and I could have been, you know, walking on my hands and nobody would have noticed. And so I think when those moments come up or someone will say to me, as happened recently, someone told me that they have a grown child who was conceived using um, a donor and that they have never told that child and asked me what I thought they should do. And it gets very tricky for me because I almost feel like I'm having a conversation with my own mother when, when, when somebody says something like that to me. And I do have very strong opinions about the corrosive power of secrets. And look, I understand why my parents didn't tell me. And I am very happy to be here. I really love my life. And even when I didn't love my life and was feeling sort of like a, just like an alien um, as a result of this discovery, I would look at my son, who's just this magnificent person, and I would think, without any of this, you wouldn't be here. You change one single thing about any of this, you would not exist. So I'm very happy that everything happened exactly the way it happened. I understand that my parents couldn't tell me because no one in that generation did. No one. You know, we live in a culture and in a society that so badly wants to put everything into its basket and have everything, like, remain in its lane. And once that is the ground that you spring from, once there is that wound, there always is that wound. Closure is a myth. Healing is incomplete. Um, There are always scars. When my, my son was little, we used to play this game, Shoots and Ladders. And, you know, you're kind of moving your little piece along on the, on the board. Um, and then, you know, you roll the dice and you, you hit a certain square and it's a shoot. And all of a sudden you were on that square, you were in the, you were in the present, you were making progress on the path. And boom, you're back down to like wh- where you began. And sometimes there's a ladder and you get to climb up. I feel like that's a metaphor for what we commonly, you know, and probably overuse the term triggering. Like something will trigger that feeling, that very solitary, lonely, not being seen, not being understood feeling. And even though I'm 60 years old, and even though I have this big, rich, wonderful life, I can be brought right back there. Yeah, and the intensity of it, because as you said, your body remembers. So it's it's so amplified because of that, the intensity and the amplification, because of the history and the wiring of, of the story in your body. Right. And it remains as alive as it's ever been. I mean, you know, Bessel van der Kolk, who was a guest um, in a bonus episode of Family Secrets a while back, you know, the body keeps the score. I mean, it's one of the great titles of all time. I mean, the body does keep the score. And no amount of knowledge or intellectualizing or... Meditating or lemon juice, I've tried it all. Meditation, lemon juice, yoga, therapy, talk therapy, you know, 
cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, you know, it all helps, but it's never going to make it go away. And and that's okay. I really feel like to have that go away would actually be I, I what would what would that even mean? It would be like I'd be like sort of amputating a part of myself that that lived, you know, that lived that story. Yeah, and and the work is the softening of it, right? Not the eradication. Exactly. Exactly. I love that word soften and I think about it a lot and try to sort of model it in my life. That that feeling of um yoga teacher friend of mine, Elena Brower, once said to me as I was getting ready to go on book tour and I pulled my back, you know, like picking my suitcase off my bed and I called her because she travels all the time and said, how do you do it? And she said, move softly through the world. And I constantly, it's like a mantra. I think about that when I'm moving through the world, when I'm having an off day, um, just move softly. Just, you know, be gentle with yourself. We'll be right back. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. 
kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. In thinking about the discovery of you, you being the secret, as you have said, and eventually that you would meet your biological father, and then that as a result, you would create a podcast called Family Secrets, which would reach millions of people around the world. And I can only imagine the ripple effect of the families and the conversations and the healing and that have occurred. And it, I couldn't not think deeply about, for all of the realities of technology in the world and the good and the bad, the intersection of technology and humanity and technology and human story and your particular arc that at this time and place, for the identity would have never been exposed because the technology didn't exist to understand your genes in the way that we can now by simply your husband telling you in the kitchen, hey, spit in this vial, that you meeting your biological father and, and you paint in the book, you peering into each other's world. I mean, he's really getting to know you through your writing and seeing pictures and almost, I, I think, this sense of safety and security and looking at that you and your the pictures and your words that this is a safe person to meet in person and connect, or at least that was my experience. And then you turn to podcasting. And had this been 20 years ago, none of that would have existed or been available um, in the way that it is now and the reach that it is now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it would have been, you know, one, one of my favorite quotes from sort of Buddhist literature has to do with Dharma. And it's, you know, when it comes to Dharma or your, your life's calling, if you're off by a centimeter, you might as well be off by a mile. Yeah. And if I had lived my whole life, especially given what I've done in my life and the excavating that I've done and the the writing book after book about you know family and identity and different kinds of you know novels and memoirs that all really kind of dealt with secrets in one way or another and if I had never known I think there always would have been something that was off by a centimeter it's what it felt like even though I had reached a point in my life where I had a you know tremendous amount of stability and love and family and work that I love and you know felt and feel very blessed in that way but there that centimeter would have been there and the thing about the podcast and also about publishing inheritance it is one of the things I realized and this actually goes back to Bessel van der Kolk again um, in the body keeps the score he talks about trauma and the different ways that people recover from or have trouble recovering from traumatic events is that if it's a traumatic event that has trapped you, say, you know, something where you were powerless, you know, you're in a car watching someone, you know, someone in another car not make it or, you know, 
a crash. Uh, you know, m- there are many examples that I don't want to trigger my listeners with. But, you know, if you're in a state of powerlessness when you are traumatized, there tends to be a more difficult, challenging outcome in terms of dealing with that trauma as opposed to the kind of trauma that allows for a kind of agency. And when I was reading that, I was rereading The Body Keeps the Score before Bessel came on my show, and I thought, oh, that's what I've done. I wrote a book about this experience that has helped hundreds of thousands of people and has actually had an impact. You know, parents have told their children when they never planned on telling You wrote it. it the book you needed on the shelf at that very moment. Yeah, and it turned out that a lot of other people did too, And I started hearing about that, and so there was this tremendous sense of purpose to what had been extremely painful and hard and traumatic and shocking. And then Family Secrets, which has been, like, really one of the great gifts in my life. I started this podcast by accident. I had no idea what I was doing. I was on the phone with my friend Sylvia Borstein, whose episode is in the first season of Family Secrets. She is an early reader of mine. She read a draft of Inheritance, and she proceeded to tell me a story about a family secret. And I just thought, oh my God, I wish everyone could hear this. This is a really moving, beautiful story, and she's an amazing storyteller. And the next thought that went through my mind as I was sitting on the phone was, huh, I wonder if there's a podcast about family secrets. And there wasn't. You know, there are times in our lives where the dominoes just all fall in a certain direction, you know, in a good way or in a not good way. That was in an extremely good way. And then there was this coincidence, which is that she was coming to visit me. She lives in the Bay Area. She was coming to New England to visit me in a few weeks. And so the podcast company that I was connected to said, you know, we'll send a sound engineer. Let's just give it a, let's give it a whirl. Why don't you have a conversation? We'll see what we've got. And we did that, and then everybody got really excited. I never had a dream that it would be a huge, successful podcast. I didn't even know what that meant when it hit the iTunes top 10 the week that it came out. I thought maybe all podcasts did that. I truly had no idea. Because we all have secrets, right? (laughs) Right. So I would think, because it's so deeply universal, and to focus in and zoom in on a beautiful inspiring and uplifting aspect of your work and secrets, so often there is liberation. And certainly in in your work and inheritance, you write a lot about the liberation. In a sense, it sort of created this blank page for, for you to be and explore who you want to be including changing your name, mm-hmm. <laughs> getting a tattoo, mm-hmm. all of these these things because you weren't as tethered to your story of origin or your generational story. And certainly we know, obviously, in this community that, that secrets can be deeply freeing, in a sense, and healing, as difficult as the process is to move through them. Yeah. I mean, well, the knowledge is a kind of its own kind of superpower, no matter how hard it is. The knowledge after a long time of being shoved under the rug, being in some way compartmentalized, um, because I really do think that most of the time a secret's being kept from us. On some level, we do know that. And if we are the secret keeper, we're haunted by the burden of carrying that secret. And then 
you know, the secrets that we keep from ourselves, you know, that was the story of my life. I mean, I was having a secret kept from me, but I was also keeping a secret from myself because it was impossible and too dangerous to know. So I used to ask my guests in every episode, I would ask them in the interview, do you wish you hadn't found out? And not one single one of my guests said, yeah, I wish I hadn't found out. I kept a secret for 24 years and I shared it on my podcast um, three years ago that I have bipolar disorder. And the amount of the weight, the shame and the secrecy and the work of covering it up, I was, I mean, I would go on a girl's trip and leave my little makeup bag that had all my meds in it and leave it unzipped. And when I saw it, my hand would shake that somebody had, you know, as if they would spend their time Googling what all the medications were. (laughs) But that was my level of fear of being seen, of being known for who I really am and and the brain I was given in this world. And, um, you know, on the outside, I was working for Oprah. I had three kids, happily married. Um, Obviously, my three kids and my love of my husband is very real, but there were pieces of my mental health that were really hard to manage. And so stepping out of that shame, I, I cannot tell you the freedom, the liberation, the healing, and what I think about your work on this podcast. And it certainly was not my intention when I shared, but the message it sends generationally, I believe to my kids, is that not that there's there's no place for it, but shame and secrecy will not win. <laughs> Stepping into your truth. I just think, you know, my daughter even said to me, she was talking about a friend talking about her mom's mental health, and she was curious, like, I'm confused why everyone keeps it a secret, and you talk about talk about it so openly. So I think the work that you are doing, the impact will live on as people share their secrets and heal from them and are move into this place of freedom, which I deeply sense that you've experienced. And for me, it's been perhaps one of the greatest gifts I've I've given myself in my life was no longer keeping it a secret. I love hearing that. And it, and it, and it makes me think really like it's all of a piece, right? Because yeah. if you keep a secret like the one that you kept out of shame, out of fear that you won't be perfect. People won't see you as the the perfect shiny exterior with the amazing career and the amazing family. You'll be rejected. You'll be judged. Yes. Right. And that's not what happens, is it? Oh, it is the opposite. People are drawn to you in a way that is unexplainable. I mean, within weeks of hitting publish and, you know, tens of thousands of people hearing the thing I'd hid my whole life, I mean, people in the grocery store I would run into in town would lean in a little closer. I mean, I thought people would run, and instead they were drawn in. It was fascinating. That's a little bit of what I was describing in terms of the superpower. There's something that feels... There's it like radiates a kind of humanity, humility, transparency that makes other people feel more comfortable with whatever their own stuff is because everybody has stuff. 
Brene Brown says, you know, in, when, in her work around vulnerability, you share it with the people who've earned the right to try. And, it, and I always am careful to say not everyone has to shout it on a podcast or from the mountain. It may just be your family, your friend, you know, but, but the liberation and having it no longer be a secret, moving it into the light is where the magic happens. Exactly. So I listened to your interview with um, Jamie Lee Curtis, and you talked about faith, and faith is a, is a huge part of your story of your discovery and you being a secret because of your family's deep lineage and story of, of their faith, devout faith. So your book, Devotion, you had said in the interview that that changed you the most. So I'm curious why and how did it change you? Devotion was a book that I really did not want to write. It wanted to be written. I think that's true with all of my books, but with Devotion, when I realized what I was embarking on, the title came to me first, and I realized that I wanted to grapple or needed to grapple with my own history. You know, my son was very young. He was asking me questions about what I believed, and I realized I had absolutely nothing to say because I had pushed back so hard against that complicated childhood of my own that, you know, I hadn't replaced it with anything. I had just rebelled against it. And so I was raising my son with no rituals. And, you know, certainly I had a spiritual life and I'm a longtime practicer of yoga and and I meditate every day. Um, But there was something I felt like I was not fully doing for him as his mother that I wanted to be. And And so I started writing this book, and it came out in these little pieces, like little breadcrumbs through a forest. Um, My mandate to myself was that I was trying to look at every single passage, every single scene or incident as, does this pose a spiritual question that I can grapple with? And if it doesn't, it doesn't belong in this book. And along the way, as I was writing it, I thought, I am... I really think I'm writing a book that no one will read. It's so deeply, idiosyncratically me. And I felt and feel a little bit like a unicorn. So unless you're a unicorn with the same exact unicorn properties as me, um, you're not going to be able to relate to this book. That's what I thought. And then Devotion came out. And what started happening pretty much immediately was that I started hearing from people, readers, of every different stripe, of every different age, gender, you know, nationality, background. And they all said the same thing, which was, you've told my story. And that was what was life-changing, because it was the first time, and it's happened many times since, but it was the first time that I understood just how alike we all are um, on the inside, that we carry the same anxieties and fears and burdens and longings, and the content of them may be different, but the, you know, the human experience is not as distinct or different from each other as, as we think it is. And, and what that did, I had been terrified of public speaking before that, couldn't stand getting up in front of crowds, um, which is not great if you do what I do. <laughs> you need to be able to do that. 
And it cured that for me. And the reason why it cured that for me um, was because I would look out into an audience and just think, we are connected. There, there really isn't this... This is safe, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is safe. There isn't... You're not sitting there judging me. You're sitting there ready to uh, feel something, and I'm here wanting to offer you that, wanting to give you that. And so that's what I meant in that conversation with Jamie about about the way it changed me. But it was really the beginning of that has been true now throughout these years since 2010 when that book came out. Um, that feeling of if you really tell your story and if you tell it true, then what the listener is going to hear is, oh, that's my story too. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable and with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. 
Happy International Women's Day. I found a piece of myself in inheritance. And the interesting thing is it was such kind of a subplot in your story, but it was these few sentences and I highlighted and it literally changed the way I view myself as a, as a mother. It didn't change. It gave me language to it. And you were talking about meeting your biological half-sister and you said something along the lines of your illustrating kind of your immediate bond and some of the things you had in common. And you said serious about our work and fierce about our children. And I have, for whatever reason, as somebody who has loved working, who has been really um, deeply passionate and ambitious in her work, I had this deep guilt because I live in a community where most moms are stay-at-home moms, that there was a choice I was making and it had to be one or the other. And you saying that it was okay to be serious about your work and fierce about your kids, I literally went on a walk that night and said, that is me. I'm both. I mean, it was it was unbelievable, Danny. But I think when you look out into that sea of people, they're looking for little pieces of themselves, or little answers, or clarity. And um, something as little as that, a few sentences, gave me such peace. Oh, I love hearing that. And it's been my experience that either in teaching or speaking or writing, you never know exactly what's going to land or who it's going to land with. And in a way. It's kind of none of your business as the writer. You said something, too, about like finding yourself in, in a description or in the language. And you know, I just, I just want to say one thing because I feel like it might be helpful, which is that when it comes to the secrets that we keep from ourselves, I know no better tool. You know, I mean, listeners will know that so many of my guests on Family Secrets are writers, and, and that is not because I wanted to create a literary podcast. It's not a literary podcast. Um, it's a podcast about, about family secrets. But it's often writers because writers, and in this case have written books, but the very act of setting words down on the page, the very act of just trying to write it out, the very act of attempting to write it out actually unlocks things. I think probably you know in the in the top few gifts in my life the fact that i became a writer and that i got to spend my days and my months and my years actually following the line of words and not even knowing where the line of words was going to lead me has a lot to do with my having been able to unlock of course i i, I would never have unlocked it without a dna test but you know when i look back at my early work it's actually there on the page. Um, you know, if I look at my first novel, it takes my breath away. On some level, I knew. And if I look at my little book on writing, still writing, um, there are lines in there. Like there's, there's, there's a line in there where I'm snooping through my parents' things, and I write, what was I looking for? A clue, a reason. And the word reason is italicized. And it's like, what? I didn't, I didn't know anything. What, what, what did I even mean by that when I wrote that book that I wrote years before the discovery about my dad. So there's something about the, you know, the act of, the act of writing and the act of reading and sort of finding yourself and the act of listening to podcasts and this sort of the intimacy of what that is, of 
you're doing it by yourself. When you're listening to a podcast, you're listening to it by yourself. There's no such thing as, as far as I know, as like podcast listening parties, you know, or podcast groups, like there are book groups. You're, you're, it's intimate. And the act of reading, um, when you're reading a book, you're doing it by yourself. Nobody can do that for you. And when you're writing something, you're writing it by yourself and for yourself. So I think all of these things are ways in which things get unlocked. I'm so glad you brought up the intimacy of podcasting because I wanted to ask you about this community and what it's meant to you and how it's contributed to your healing. But what I've learned as a podcaster is I I love the work of sharing, being a conduit and sharing other people's stories. And when you think of the intimacy of being in someone's ear on a walk as they fold their laundry, as they drive to work, and having these really deeply intimate conversations and the connection and the opportunity, right, in a world that's moving so fast with so many distractions, to be able to connect that way, it's a really, really powerful medium. And I, and I, and I think it is really impactful. When, when done with intention, as you do on, on this podcast. And on that note, I'm really curious. You know, we've talked about a lot of tentpole moments in your life, but I know your husband, your great love, had cancer recently. Is he in remission? He's, he's considered cured. He, it was um, three years ago. Three years ago. So I know your husband had cancer. There was a global pandemic. As much as you're showing up for this podcast, you are dealing with a, a real life and difficulties and pain. And in creating this community and that connection and intimacy, what has this community meant to you? How has it changed you and, and how has it healed you? When I'm doing one of these uh, interviews for episodes, Time stops for me. I go so deep inside the story. I'm like, I, my entire being is an instrument that is in the service of the story that my guest is sharing with me. And so the actual act of doing the interview itself feels like a sacred act to me. And it's, it's very intentional. I don't use Zoom. I know a lot of podcasters do. And I, I don't um, because... It feels to me more intimate in each other's ears. I mean, like my eyes are closed right now as I'm talking to you. I want to be able to go as deep as I can into the story of my guest. And I feel honored that my guest trusts me with their story. And I think a big part of why they do is because I'm not approaching it as a journalist and I'm not approaching it. You know, people who have never listened to the podcast think, ooh, family secrets, you know, like it must be a kind of sensational, salacious, sensational, salacious, prurient, you know, rubbernecking, watching other people's tragedies, you know, go by. And that is the very, very last thing that I'm interested in. And so I'm with my guests very much with the feeling of me too. And at the same time, you know, over the course of the seven thus far, it's about to be eight seasons of Family Secrets, I've realized that I actually recede into the background more and more, and my guests' stories become more and more, 
I mean, they've always been front and center, but I think in the beginning, I would insert myself more. And I've done that less and less. I mean, I'm sure there's VO, and but it's about the story itself. And that's been just really interesting for me to notice. Um, I just feel like I'm so completely in the service of the stories and the person who I most want to reach and to love the episode when it comes out is my guest. If I've done my job, my guest, you know, often somebody who's been interviewed many, many times before will say, I never thought that before. I never made that connection. I never said that or, or I've never cried before while I'm being interviewed. Uh, whatever it is, just a feeling of like, I want you to see your story in a new way. I want you to see your story maybe with a different dimension or a little bit more um, illuminated for you than before we had this conversation. And then, you know, one of the amazing things to me about having a podcast that has millions of listeners is that it's kind of abstract. I mean, I know that there are all these listeners, but as I said, like I could be walking down the street and somebody could be walking up the street, passing me with their AirPods in their ears, and they could be listening to me, and I wouldn't know it. Yeah, I've never thought about that. And so there's there's no, you know, if if you write a book, you know, you, somebody took a picture the other day of somebody on the subway reading um, my most recent novel. It's like, okay, somebody's reading my novel on the subway. If they were listening to my podcast, there would be no picture, and no one would know that. Mm-hmm. And so there have been these moments, and they are so meaningful to me. But I was at a wedding last summer, when a young woman came up to me and she said, you're Danny Shapiro, right? I said, yeah. And she said, my entire family, like you've changed our lives. We've all listened to Family Secrets and it enabled us to talk about things that we had never been able to talk about before. And what an immense privilege to have anything to do with helping people to feel less alone in their, you know, whatever it is that is making them feel apart or alone. And that's just amazing to me and wonderful. And it does feel, you know, sometimes I record bonus episodes and I'll refer to my world of listeners as the Family Secrets family, because that's what it feels like to me. And the privilege on both ends. I mean, I often think, and you just express this, the privilege and the honor for someone, in our case, the guest, to trust you with their heart. I mean, the bravery and courage it takes to not only share um, the most vulnerable pieces of yourself, but to share it knowing it'll be broadcast, you know, around the world and, and who you choose to trust that story with. So I think, you know, the privilege of being the conduit between the family that was changed and, and the person, the guest who chose you, right, who trusted you with their heart. and. It really is. Like, when you think about it deeply, the work is, it makes you hurtful. It's really true. Um, It's really true. And it's the way that I think of myself when I'm putting together episodes and when I'm preparing for them and when I'm doing the interview um, is I'm trying to do my best to hold the story, to, like, to hold it in my arms, to be the container for it, to make the container for it. And, you know, to be trusted with doing that is just a really wonderful thing. So my last question, you write so lovingly about your aunt who has played, you know, such a exquisite role in your life. 
And I heard you on the podcast that she says, go where it's warm. So my last question is, what does that mean to you? And where do you go to be warm? I think that there are people and places for all of us where we feel our safest, where we feel seen and known, where we feel the absence of certain things, like the absence of competitiveness, the absence of envy, the absence of comparison, where we're with people that we know are rooting for us and want the best for us. And I think sometimes when we don't come from, when the initial landscape of our childhoods isn't that, it's a learning experience along the way. Because we can be drawn to places where it isn't warm because it's familiar. And one of the benefits of living long enough and learning enough and getting older is that I really don't have the patience for that anymore in my life. I, to the degree that I can choose who I want to, we can't always choose who, who we're going to be around, but to the degree that I can, I want to choose to be with people who, who love me and who I love and really to have time with them, to not be racing, to not be always onto the next. And we live in a world that, you know, that doesn't reward depth or quiet. I think in, increasingly there is a, I think there's, there's a bit of a move toward understanding how important depth and quiet and, you know, sitting with the Danish have this beautiful word that I never pronounce right. It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E, and I think it's yuga, yuga. And it's, the meaning is a kind of like a relaxed, open, warm, inviting environment. And that's, that's what I want to create for the people around me. And that's how I want to live my life and spend my time in whatever way I can. That's beautiful. I just interviewed a deaf doula and she, you know, walks with the dying in the last weeks and months of their lives. And she refers to them as the wisdom keepers. And I asked her, you know, if there was one piece of advice and wisdom, and that was exactly what she said. She said, just to slow down and make space to just be with your people. Because really, time is all we have. And you learn that. I mean, you mentioned my husband's illness. If I didn't know that already, it was completely brought home to me that when you're facing something terrifying like that, all you really want is time. Well... Danny, you have made such beautiful meaning out of your discovery of your secret and the work of Family Secrets and the community you have built, which feels very warm to me, a very warm place to go. So thank you for that. And thank you for trusting me to have this conversation and, yeah, to hopefully share some new pieces of yourself with your Family Secrets family. Oh, Kimmy, thank you so much. It was really interesting to have the tables turned. (laughs) (laughs) Phew. Well, that was meaningful and intense. I'm reminded of the courage it takes to share oneself fully, openly, with vulnerability and heart. My thanks to Kimmy Culp. 
as well as to my amazing team. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Molly Zakur is story editor, and Dylan Fagan is executive producer. We'll be back in your ears on May 4th with our all-new season. I couldn't be more excited to share it with you. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.